chapter 26, and let's start reading at the first verse. It came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. As, uh, as Americans that live 2,000 years from the time when this was written, we are really at a disadvantage in a lot of our cultural and our, our language difficulties. The, the word Passover in that second verse, that probably doesn't mean much to many people in this entire country. But if you were a Jewish person who wrote, the Holy Spirit used to write this, and the culture that he was in, anybody back then, had they heard the phrase, the Passover, it would have meant a great deal to them. You could liken it a little bit to, say, the American thought of Thanksgiving. When we hear that word, we don't, or we do think of a very specific event. Just saying that word to you, my mind takes me back to my grandmother's where she made three pies all every time. A triple berry, a, 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 a rhubarb, and a pumpkin pie. I can smell that as I stand here, and I can hear the, my 51st cousins throwing things at each other. There are so many things that we associate with that because it's an event. It came around every year. It landed on the same time. And this is no different. To a Jewish ear, when they heard the word Passover, that's a special celebration, a feast, a commemoration of a certain event. And there's far too many of us Americans that when we hear that we have no idea what the Bible is talking about. But see, the Bible doesn't stop when it uses the word Passover. It doesn't stop and give you three chapters of review of where that word came from. It doesn't tell you when it started or what the circumstances were. So unless you have done it on your own and have the background information, you may not link together what the Bible is linking together. Jesus here tells his disciples that the feast of the Passover is coming and comma, the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. He is linking his death, specifically, with this event, whatever that thing is, the Passover. Let's keep reading. Look down at verse 17. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover well, even if we are just dumb Americans, we are getting more information. This Passover thing has something to do with some type of meal. You eat this thing, or this event is surrounded by some type of meal. Jesus responds in verse 18, Go into the city to such a man and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. Now this tells us that this Passover thing, it's something that you keep. And in the context, what it's talking about, it's an observation. You observe, you remember, you go through some activities and some behavior that reminds you of something, and that, of course, is all in the word keep. He, we're going to go keep this festival, this feast. Now, in the beginning, or in the middle of verse 18, look at it, it says, Jesus said, my time is at hand. What does that phrase mean? What's he talking about? Is he talking about this Thanksgiving type event? No. 
at least there'll be a linkage there, but he says, my time is at hand, comma, then he talks about that Passover feast, but what's he talking about at my time is at hand? Same thing we saw in verse 2, it's his death, isn't it? He, he knows the next day those soldiers are coming for him, or actually even this very night, and he knows that is coming. And again, just want to impress upon your mind that Jesus himself is linking these two things. His death and whatever this event is, the Passover. The Jewish people, and that's who Jesus was talking to when he told his, his disciples, go and prepare this. Go, you'll, you'll meet this guy telling the master needs use of such and such and he'll give you an upper room. And these Twelve disciples, Jewish, and this man, Jesus, Jewish, prepare to have this meal. Before we go any farther than this, we need to just stop here and and go back in time. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12 and pull some things apart because without having in our consciousness the events that are surrounding this, you really do miss a lot of the meaning. As an example... We mentioned that to us Americans, that word thanksgiving is something like this. It, it's, a, it's a feast, it is a celebration, something that comes around, but what are we celebrating? You can go to way too many schools, and they are teaching our kids that the pilgrims celebrated the Indians saving their lives. That is not what thanksgiving is for. doesn't mean the Indians were bad people, but they were not dropping to their knees praying, worshiping the Indians for keeping them from starving to death back in the 1600s. That's not what it was about. They recognized that the God of their fathers and the God of the Bible had brought them through a terrible winter and they wanted to thank God that they made it. And they started what is known as Thanksgiving. Now, if if you don't have the information accurate, you can have the wrong idea about what Thanksgiving is. You pass it to your kids and it just... The meaning is lost as you go down through time. And the same thing can happen in this example. This Passover started at a very specific time and place, just like our Thanksgiving did. And again, this is a good example because it's kind of people-specific. There are people, I'm sure, in Afghanistan that the word Thanksgiving, that American word, means nothing to them. Even people in Europe would have, very likely it would mean not that much to them. Remote places of the earth, because ours started in this country, and we didn't necessarily take it to other countries and put a gun to their head and tell them, you have to follow this, celebrate this, observe this. This event of the Passover is kind of specific to the Jewish nation, because that's where it started. And it started back here in Exodus chapter 12. Jacob had brought all of his family, when Joseph was down in Egypt... Jacob had brought all his family and they lived in Egypt because there was a famine in the land and the only grain was in Egypt because Joseph, in the seven years of plenty, had stored it up. For a long time, several generations, they lived down there, they multiplied, but the Bible tells us that a Pharaoh came in Egypt who knew not the relationship that Jacob and Joseph had with the government of Egypt and he started to make the the Hebrews slaves. And it got so bad that he started drowning every male child in the Nile. And that takes us to the story of Moses. He didn't want the children of Israel to ever have an army to escape. 
So they lived under some bad conditions for hundreds of years. And this chapter of Exodus 12 is where it begins to unravel for the pharaohs and where God is reclaiming his people and he's going to take them out into the wilderness to serve himself. Now, we're picking up in Exodus 12. This is the last of the ten plagues. The first nine are amazing things. The Bible tells us that what those people saw in Egypt, no human being has ever seen anything like it. All the water turned to blood. It rained down hailstones of fire. There was a plague of darkness for several days. There was no light. The sun didn't shine, except where the Israelites dwelt. In their homes there was light. There was the plague of frogs, lice, all kinds of things where God was separating his people out. And this is the last one. God tells Moses, you go in and tell Pharaoh, and and the Bible tells us God hardened Pharaoh's heart so he wouldn't let him go. God wanted, he had a desire to show his entire right arm stretched out in power. He wanted them, his people, to see, if you follow me, these things are on your side. This power will work for you and against your enemies. And this is the last plague. Moses goes into Pharaoh and he says, tonight, the the firstborn is going to die. And that meant from the firstborn, the oldest that opened the womb. If he was living in the dungeon, in the prison, he would die. If it was in Pharaoh's house, they would die. Every commoner, the oldest child, died that night. Except. Exodus chapter 12, look at verse 2. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. And it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak you and all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto him take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. Verse 6, you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. The Bible has some strange instructions sometimes. Can you imagine being Moses and Aaron and having heard this? There's a lot of strange. God told Abraham, take that only kid that I've promised to you and you take him up to a mountain and do something very similar to this. Nevertheless, They are supposed to get it on the tenth day, this lamb. And for four days, they keep it in the house. They get to know this thing for four days. And then it says they kill it. Now, I wonder what would happen if we would have brought one of Livia's very cute little goats. And they are adorable. They they even make almost human sounds when they're born. That little bad, bad, it sounds like a little baby. If we brought that thing in here for an hour and passed it around to all you guys, I guarantee you there would be some of you ladies that wouldn't just hand it to the person next to you right away. You cuddle with that thing and you coochie coo that thing. I mean, it's cute. And then when the last person, Randy, got it, he brought it up to me and I took a knife and I slit its throat right here. There would undoubtedly be some gasps of horror. As it should be. That was God's intent. The idea that something innocent, something without blemish, didn't do anything to anybody, it would die for someone else. 
God taught these people this idea starting from here, and they still do it today. That idea of a lamb, and you get to know this thing. It becomes a little bit kind of precious. It's almost a family pet. It's different in an animal that you don't know. It's very different for an animal that you do know. And these were the instructions. Kill it at the end of verse 6. Verse 7, they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Getting stranger, they catch the blood. You just don't let it run down the curb, wash it away, down the gutter. You catch it and you go outside your house and you put it on the doorpost and what the Bible calls a lintel across the top. This is getting a little goofy. Verse 8, They shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. We should probably point out this thing about the unleavened bread, because in Matthew, where we were reading, it also had that verse, unleavened bread. That part of this meal, unleavened bread, was meant to go with this meal. What's taking place here, we don't have the time to read all of it, God, after they eat this meal... Something very, very powerful is going to happen. And they need to be ready to leave their house and to go. They're leaving Egypt. They're leaving slavery in one night. There wasn't a negotiation of terms, a bartering process of maybe we'll try it. We'll, there were some things thrown around. That Pharaoh thought maybe we'll let you go out there for a little bit, but then you come back. This is ending all tonight. And unleavened means no yeast. They didn't make the bread. And as I understand making bread, you can set it off to the side and let that thing puff up and grow as the yeast spreads throughout and it puffs that bread up so you have more of it. They didn't do that. They didn't have time. God instructed them, make your bread even without yeast. Why? For this night's purpose, it was because we are not waiting till that rises. We're getting you out of here now. Instantaneously. And this was to be remembered. When they had their feast, their pumpkin pie didn't have whipped cream. They had to take this stuff without yeast. It was flat. It didn't rise. It was almost crispy, like a cracker. And for thousands of years, they ate it this way to commemorate this idea. We didn't have time. God got us out of there so fast, the bread didn't rise. It was just flat, dry. We ate it, and out the door we went. That was carried on even to Jesus' time. They were talking about the day, the feast of unleavened bread. These things were, they were together, because as you can see in this story, they go together. The meal, where you sat down and ate that lamb or that little baby goat, you had the same bread. But it says here, they went outside and they put it on the door posts of their house. Look at verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night. And this is God talking, not Moses. And I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So he's just now given the last bit of information. The reason I'm telling you this, folks, is because tonight I'm going through all of Egypt and wherever I don't see blood, somebody's dying in that house. Firstborn. Even the beasts. 
the firstborn of the cattle died. He says here in verse 13, The blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over. Now, he has already started to give them instructions about what to do to make sure that the curse, the plague, passes over their house. You notice he, he, didn't, he named what it was after he, was, he had given them instructions. And it even comes from the instructions. He's going to pass over. From this night on, this event would be remembered as the Passover. That language describes what happened where God's judgment passed over their house and went to somebody else. And why? It says there, the blood's between you and me. It's a sign to me. And of course, we've now we've got a lot of bells and red flags ringing in our mind. That's what Jesus' blood does for us. It starts right here, the Passover. And in Jesus' time, when he tells his disciples where, where we're going to eat the Passover tonight, and he gives them instructions and they go and prepare for it, they're preparing to commemorate, to celebrate this deal where God came into Egypt and the only thing that kept you from death was the blood of the Lamb. This is why the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, it opens up with John the Baptist pointing to Jesus. He's walking through the crowd. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You know, when you were in Sunday school, did they, 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 we don't do a good enough job of teaching our kids where these symbols, these things come from. You know, I always wonder, do kids wonder, why didn't they call him the dog of the Lord? The, the goat. Why don't they call him the frog of the Lord? The squirrel. It's a specific animal. Because God had spent a couple thousand years preparing a visual lesson. That we take this lamb in and he's soft and he's cuddly and he's perfect. There's no blemishes. You couldn't take one with half an ear that got froze off. Or was missing a tail or was limping. None of that. It had to be perfect. To represent what? That Jesus was without blemish, without sin. See, God doesn't sacrifice something that is he's going to get rid of anyway. That maybe the coyotes are going to catch up to because it can't run fast enough. He doesn't do that. He sacrifices the best thing. Sinless. And it was, he was teaching his people for a couple thousand years so that when they got to Jesus' time, they should have been able to recognize. Just like John the Baptist did recognize. There goes the Lamb of God. He knew the plan of God that was coming. He's the Lamb of God, and he says, comma, that takes away the sin of the world. How does God deal with sin? Only through bloodshed. John the Baptist knew. Someday, he's going to have to die for us. That's... That's the entire picture that God created here with this story. Now what's amazing in this story is that it, it actually happened. The, the, in some verses it says the death angel. Some places it says the plague, God's judgment. That night it passed through all of Egypt. And it was so bad, there was wailing in every home that did not have the blood applied to it. To such an extent that the next morning, the Egyptians get up and they go to Pharaoh and they tell him, I don't care what you have to do, let these he not just let these Hebrews go, force them out of here. Because if you don't, we're all dead men. The citizens of Egypt literally thought, and Pharaoh did too, 
we're all going to die, that the God of these Hebrews is so mad at us. We do not get them out of here soon because they've already lost a ton of their cattle. It rained hailstones of fire. The firstborn of the beasts just died, not to mention their kids. And they can see the writing on the wall. If we don't get these people out of here, the judgment's getting worse every time. We will all be dead. Think of that. For 400 years, they had been slaves. And in one night, they didn't sneak out. They didn't tunnel out. They didn't jump over the wall. And they didn't pick the lock. Their captors, the people that they saw every day and thought, these guys own us. Whatever they say they can do to us, they can murder one of us and there's no consequences. Those people did what? Begged them to leave. You have something in your life that has been a problem for a long time that you can't quite picture yourself being free from. That a problem that has existed in your life that you have pled with God but you feel like something that just it'll never be removed from your life and you don't see even the first sign of it being dealt with. It's the same. It might even look as strong as it's ever been. Because when Moses showed up there, it got worse. Pharaoh said, they've got to go get their own straw to make their bricks. It got worse. Never think that, well, God, it hasn't happened yet. I'll bet it never is going to happen for me. In one night. The very people that were forcing them into slavery forced them out. They begged them to leave. And we're not going to take the time to read it. God told the Hebrews, you go to the Egyptians and you knock on their doors. And the Bible uses the word borrow. He said you borrow, you ask of them for their gold, silver, and jewelry. And the Egyptians, when they open the door and there's dead flies smattered here and there's Lysol in their hair and there's water in their bathtub, or blood in their bathtub instead of water and they're getting prepared to bury their firstborn. They go into the bedroom drawers, throw the underwear off to the side in the socks and grab every dollar bill they can and shove in the face of those people. Please get out. Leave us alone. They took that. And they marched out in the wilderness. And one day, look how fast things changed. Keep a finger here. Turn to Psalm chapter 105. There is some amazing information in the Psalms about many of these stories. Psalm chapter 105. And look at verse 36. This is recounting what we have been reading in Exodus. It says, He, God, He smote all the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. He brought them forth also with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Now the Bible is really good with numbers. When they get out into the wilderness after this event, in the weeks, the months leading after, they, they do a head count. They, they, we know how many people left, how many men of a certain age. And when you multiply that, if they had some wives and kids, there's two to three million people walking out of Egypt. And that verse says there was not one sick one. Not a feeble person 
among them. That does not mean that they were Hitler Nazis and they killed off anybody that limped. That means that there was a miracle. That these slaves who didn't have health care, because if you're a slave, they don't waste money on fixing your teeth or setting your bone just properly. They shoot you, drown you, and they bring along the next able-bodied person. That verse says that not one person of the slaves who had had stones fall on their hands and maybe broke a hand, cut off a finger, a foot, not one feeble person among them. Are you getting a picture of what the blood of the Lamb does for humanity? This is the picture God created. Before any of this happened, what, what took place? And let's remind, what was the first plague in Egypt? First thing God did when he showed up, he turned the water into blood. The blood is what cleanses us. The blood is what sanctifies us. It is what gets us in relationship with our Father. And once we're there, anything that we need. The picture of this, several million people are getting ready to walk out into the wilderness. In a few days, they're going to be crossing the Red Sea on the bottom of it without scuba gear. There was not a feeble, there wasn't a limper, nobody. The Bible tells us that when they do get out there in the wilderness and they start walking, their shoes didn't wear out. The miracle of their shoes grew with their feet. He took care of them. And this is the picture that we overlook so many times when we hear the phrase, the Passover. It was a miracle that he got them out. But he didn't just get their physical, slave-held bodies out and become free. They marched out with the silver, the gold, and the jewels of their Egyptian taskmasters, and there wasn't one person that was sick. The blood of Jesus does cover all of us, every part of us. In the Bible, what does it say that when you accept Christ, he, the person that believes you are a new creature? Behold, all things are become new. All things person that accepts Christ has something that is open to them. It's everything that God has to offer. And He made us. He made our bodies. He made this earth. He knows the things that we have need of even before we ask, Jesus says. And this is our example. Exodus 12. When He applies the blood to a person and the image is you and I, every human being, is slave to sin. And when a person becomes saved, cleanses them, and he sets them free, and they start walking out into what is their wilderness, it doesn't take them to heaven that day, but they do have some supplies, they're watched over with their protection and their health, and God is walking with them. We find out here in a couple of days that what does he send on the front of them, on the back of them? They had the pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Those people saw things that no human beings have ever, and it's hard to say will never, but it's close. Will never see. Can you imagine what those people in Egypt saw? They saw the ten plagues, which by themselves are astonishing. They saw fireballs of hail fall out of the sky. They saw the Red Sea open up. They saw water come out of a rock when Moses hit it with his staff. Amazing. And that is why those people had 
quite a severe judgment. When they sent the ten spies into the promised land and the twelve spies, two come out and said, we can take it. And the ten said, no way, we're not going in there. See, God had just shown them so much. And when they stiffened up and said, I, I'm sorry, God, I know you, you've done a lot, but we don't think you can handle those giants. That's why he got so angry with them. And he marched them in the wilderness until that generation died off. And the ten who brought the evil plague that said we can't do it, they died that afternoon and God buried them in the sand right there. Sometimes we read the Bible and you think, boy, that Old Testament God, he's kind of harsh. Understand the background. He did something for them that no humans have ever seen. Ever. And to them it wasn't enough. This is why throughout the entire Bible, from beginning to end, God rewards belief. He loves to be believed. When he told Adam and Eve what to do, what not to do, Satan approached her and got her to, was convinced in her mind that he probably really doesn't care if we eat that. Believe God. No matter what he says, you believe God. And the Bible has an amazing reward. Our entire eternal existence is based on do you believe what God says? Because it's only right here. As far as, for the most part, He does not come down and give you and I, each one of us, an individual face-to-face meeting and say, this is what I did for you. He has us read it or hear it. And if you believe what you hear, something in God that just rewards that, that belief, they took me at my word. They took me at my word. And God imputes life for that. Exodus chapter 12. Let's look at one or two more things here. And then we need to go back to the New Testament. Exodus chapter 12. And look at verse 40. This is the, they are now leaving Egypt. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. Now if you remember, you can go back in your Bible and it, when God talked to Abraham, who was the father of this nation, he told Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you. Now someday in the future, your seed is going to go down into, and it's going to be very difficult for them. But I will bring them out. And this is what God was telling Abraham about. This day, verse 41, it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the self-same day it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That is such an encouraging verse. Why? That God is so true to his word, he brought them out to the day that he had promised Abraham. See, I always go, every time I read that verse, my mind goes back to this thought. Two weeks before Moses comes walking out of the desert to tell Pharaoh, let him go, two weeks before that event, is there even one shred of evidence that someday, anytime in their lifetime, much less in the next month, that they're leaving? There's no sign. There's no physical thing they can point to that said, it's it's, it's starting to get better. Hey, we have hope now. None. There was zero hope up until this day. And they're out. See, God's not a respecter of person. 
in your life? Are you believing for something? Are you praying for something? It, it can happen at the last minute. And according to this, it happens at the exact time that God had promised his friend Abraham. God doesn't lie. He never lies. And in fact, he goes out of his way to record stuff like this so you can hold him to it. He's not scared of missing deadlines. The self-same day. Now one last bit of information that seems very strange. And here, look at verse 46. He is describing, he said, now that you guys are leaving, I want you to keep observing this Passover meal forever. Same day every year when it comes around the calendar. And he goes in to describe again how to do it. In verse 46, In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall you break a bone thereof. Just, God has a lot of strange instructions. And yet, he still wants to be believed and followed down to the last. When you cook that lamb, when you kill it, when you sacrifice it, when you prepare it, don't. Break any bones. You go back to Matthew now. And actually, let's go to the book of John, where John records this event, because John chapter 19, and we could have kept reading this in Matthew. I just went to John's account because there's one bit of information here that he records that I think that Matthew doesn't. John chapter 19, Jesus is he's dying on the cross in this chapter. And look at verse 14. And it was the preparation of the... What day did Jesus die? He died the same day that the entire nation of Israel was doing what? Slitting the throat of their little lamb that they'd had for four days, catching its blood the commemoration of the event of killing the lamb so that they could leave Egypt. They recounted it every year. And that's what every family is doing on the day that Jesus is being taken to the cross. That's what day it is. It's the Passover. When you go down to verse 31, the Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. So Jesus, is, he just died a few verses earlier. For that Sabbath day was a high day. They besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Somehow those Romans knew how to put people on a cross that you could kind of push up with your legs the way it sounds to help yourself breathe. Excruciating. With a nail between your feet, going through your feet. And to make sure somebody was dead before they took him off the cross, they went around and they broke their legs so they couldn't breathe. It's the way we, 2,000 years later, kind of see it. The soldiers go to the first two that are crucified with Jesus and they break their legs. And in verse 33, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs just by chance. It does not state that. They did not break his legs, verse 34, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. Forthwith came there out blood and water, and he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith is true, that you might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him 
shall not be broken. Even to Jesus dying on the cross was done unbeknownst to the soldiers. They didn't know what the scripture said. The Jewish people standing around there probably weren't thinking, I hope they don't break his legs because he's dying for us. They weren't thinking that. But God the Father, who is orchestrating all of this, the sacrifice of his son so that his blood could be applied to us, that we could leave the slavery of sin, the picture that we see of what they had in Egypt, when the blood is applied to our life, that entire scene sacrifice, the instructions have to be followed. Who had to follow those instructions? See, I got the benefit. You got the benefit. Did we have to follow those legal instructions? How to prepare that Passover sacrifice? God did that for us. These verses tell us, and he points out to us, the reader, that I went this far to make sure that not a bone of him was broken so that the scripture would be fulfilled. You think, I mean, that's, it may not be a big deal to you. It is a big deal to God. He's a detail guy. Go to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5.17. Jesus talking, and he makes the announcement, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You know what that verse is talking about? talking about a lot of things. He is going to fulfill the entire law for us. No human being could do it. I'll give the Jewish people some credit. They tried to. There was some Those Pharisees, Sadducees, even though they were wrong in tons, I will at least hand them this. They seemed like they were trying to follow that stuff. It's impossible to do. So God sent himself in the form of his son, to do it for us, to keep it for us. And when he kept it all, that means he was perfect and without blemish, without spot, just like that lamb. So that when he was sacrificed, his blood was perfectly pure to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the reason I go try to go verse to verse to verse to show you, to give you an unshakable foundation in your mind that God went to every length to make sure this was done right. You and I need to know in our daily walk with God, He's taken care of everything. There is no legal aspect that somebody can ever come in and charge you with and say you're guilty in the eyes of God. As long as that blood is applied to your heart. You, you walk with Him faithfully with that blood on you and that's what Exodus teaches you. When the death angel came to the door and he saw the blood applied, the death passed over. And it went to where there was no blood. Now, that in itself, I think that changes a little bit the way we see, the way we almost assume the, the world is in God's eyes. This is the last verse, I promise. John 3. And we're going to end with this. But that idea that... Those Egyptians had no idea, probably, 
that the death angel was coming that night. They didn't know they were guilty in God's eyes, probably. And we need to understand this. This is how humanity exists. We, every human that is born into this earth, whether they know it or not, they are guilty in the eyes of God. Why? It's that original sin. But because of what Adam and Eve brought into the earth, it passes on to all of us through the bloodstream. That's why Jesus didn't have the blood of his supposed earthly father, Joseph. That blood was not in him. It was through the Virgin Mary and the Holy Spirit. Anyway, John chapter 3, we know verse 16, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son and all that. And if you choose him, you have life eternal. But look down at the last verse in this chapter. Verse 36. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. We know that, don't we? If you believe on Jesus, you have everlasting life. But look at the rest of the verse. And he that believeth not. This means somebody who has not had the blood applied to them. It doesn't go into talk about the the good things they've done and the bad things they've done. There's an There is a starting point with God, with every human being. If you don't have the blood applied, it said, that person shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. What's that a picture of? Abideth? That means get the banana peels out of their way. We don't want them to fall and hit their head. Because if they pass from this life without accepting Jesus, this verse makes a promise. Humankind comes into this earth with the wrath of God waiting for them. And it is only through accepting what Jesus did that that gets removed, that the death angel will pass over and go to somebody else. The blood of Jesus. This is why the songs that we sing in our churches have to deal with B-L-O-O-D. Blood. There's a movement in some denominations that have removed from their hymnals these Bloody hymns. That's a problem. In the eyes of God, that's the only remedy for sin. Leviticus 17.11 That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. None. That's the only way God deals with sin. One time. That's right. He only deals with blood. And that's why Jesus was not hung. He was not poisoned. They didn't throw him off a cliff. Because, I mean, he had to come and die for us, right? Well, he did. But he had to die a specific way. According to the Scriptures. Just like that Passover lamb had done for hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever got here. God made sure that people would be able to see that and they should on their own be able to connect the dots. Just like Jesus did. He connected his death with the Passover. First verse we read tonight, he said, In two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man is to be crucified. He connects it. His death is a perfect picture of that lamb being sacrificed. And the thing to learn, to always picture in your mind when you hear the phrase, the Passover, what all took place for those Israelites in Egypt? It's remarkable. God set them free physically. He even took care of some of their needs that they would need. Although you can't spend gold and the jewels out in the desert, there was a purpose for that. They were going to be building a tabernacle. He healed their body, spirit, soul, and mind. 
when the blood of Jesus is applied to us, it covers all of us. Father, we pray, Lord, that the things that we have read in your word, that they would take root in us, that we would have maybe a bolder relationship with you. Help us, Father, to understand salvation and everything that you have done for us. Lord, we are so grateful for the things that you have supplied for us, the things that you have legally bought for us. And we pray, Lord, that each one of us would be conformed to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.